Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 74. I hope your Thanksgiving weekend was lovely. I guess Thanksgiving happens on a Thursday, so it wasn't quite a weekend, but I should say the weekend following Thanksgiving was delightful and full of friends and family and fun. Brad and I actually hosted our first Thanksgiving. It was a bit of a Friendsgiving at our house in Denver, and I'm sharing on the blog this week how I pulled it off with basically minimal effort (laughs) after a very hectic week of travel in the days leading up to Thanksgiving. I just had one of those weeks where everything was converging at once. I wanted to host. I love hosting. I love entertaining. But this was one of those storms I saw a Bruin from a mile away. I knew that I could so easily fall into the martyrdom mindset of feeling like I had to be a perfect hostess, a perfect wife, a perfect boss and all of those things were not going to happen at the same time. So I'm sharing in the vlog this week how we pulled off Thanksgiving without really breaking too much of a sweat. We kept it healthy and happy and light. And there were some unconventional ways that we kept things easy breezy so that it didn't turn into some stress factory of a holiday. Because I feel like there's so many times when we set the bar so high for ourselves that we create this totally unnecessary spiral of stress. And I don't want my holidays to feel like that anymore. So I'm really taking steps to be mindful about what I'm going to double down on and make an effort to do and what I'm going to care less about (laughs) or just give myself a little bit of slack. And I'll tell you what, the first move I made that was in my opinion, a stroke of genius that hit me last week in the days leading up to Thanksgiving where I don't want to make a turkey. I don't particularly enjoy touching raw meat. And I don't even know how to handle raw meat after three, almost three years of being a vegan. So either I was going to have to learn from zero how to make a turkey for Thanksgiving or this crazy notion popped into my head I'm going to have Brad figure it out. I'm a pie master, so I can knock a pie out, no problem. But why, if I have to learn from scratch to make a turkey, what the hell was Brad going to be doing? So you can imagine my delight when I came home from LA's boot camp last weekend. We had a bossed up boot camp, our final one of the year in LA. And Sunday night when I arrive at home, the fridge is fully stocked. He had already bought the turkey And I was like, perfect, you're already more familiar with this bird, so you'll be making it for Thanksgiving. What do you say? (laughs) And he graciously accepted my challenge, and you'll have to go to the Boston blog to hear how it all worked out. It was a team effort, I'll say that. And I'm really proud of how we did have a wonderful happy holiday without it being super crazy high stress all the time and picture perfect. That need to be picture perfect is so 
real these days, but I'm really happy with how it came out. I hope your holiday was the same, was full of fun and friends and family and just lighthearted love. That's what I'm bringing into the holiday season with me these days. And I have to elaborate on the good mood that last weekend's Bossed Up Bootcamp put me in because that was our biggest bootcamp of the year. California women, man. Y'all are rad as hell. I was so impressed. We made our debut on the West Coast with this boot camp, and it was like California women just embraced Bossed Up with open arms. And I feel so personally grateful for each and every one of you who chose to join me there and to spend your most precious resource, your time at the program that I've designed and refined over the past five years, over the past 44 or so boot camps, 45 now. Because I'm really proud of how excellent a program that is for women who are navigating career transition, who are trying to find their way through feeling lost or feeling stuck or feeling a little burnt out and proactively figuring out how to design not only a career, but a life that they're going to love and be able to sustain over time. So if you missed out on our last Bossed Up Bootcamp for 2018, make sure to sign up now to join me in D.C. in January, which is coming up fast. We'll be in D.C. on the last weekend of January. Or if D.C. doesn't work for you in January, we'll also be in Chicago and New York in the coming months as well. So I'll drop a link, but you can always check out the upcoming dates for Bossed Up Bootcamp at bossedup.org slash bootcamp. Now today... I have a really exciting interview for you with a very real listener-generated question. And today's topic is something I've been thinking a lot about lately as I continue to strive to be as much of an intersectional feminist as I can. But I was reminded that as a white woman, even though I am I do claim my Latina heritage as well, for the record. But as a woman who looks white and has all the white privilege that comes with whiteness in terms of race, I have plenty of blind spots when it comes to not always being a perfect, inclusive feminist. So I want to address that more moving forward, especially in the era of Donald Trump, where seemingly innocuous components of white supremacy have become normalized. And I say seemingly innocuous with the largest air quotes imaginable, because White supremacy is never innocuous, right? And I think the normalizing of white supremacy has become a very troubling, just like the normalizing actually of misogyny makes it harder to fight. We know what overt racism looks like. We know what overt sexism looks like. And more and more often, we're dealing with things that are not overt. They're a little more covert. Um, They're a little more unconscious. And... They seem a little less harmful, but in reality, they become much harder to identify and much harder to combat. So today's episode was inspired by this incredible anonymous caller who adds quite a bit of important detail to her career conundrum that kicked off a great conversation between my guest today and myself. Take a listen. Hey, Emily. I have a career question for you. I know that you have featured some women on podcasts who are awesome and have a range of diverse voices and backgrounds. So I have a little question about diversity in the workplace and taking a new career risk. I am early in my career, only about two or three years out of school, 
and I am in Maryland right now, and I'm going to be moving across the country to another state for a job opportunity that I decided to accept because it's going to give me a step up in my career and a really big pay bump, and I'm really excited about it. So it'll be my second job in my career now. But I have come to discover that it is going to be a really different culture from the culture that I'm used to here in that I will probably be the only person of color or minority in the office. And it's just a small team. It's the state is pretty reflective of what the office makes up. And I think I'm going to be singing out like a sore thumb, essentially. And I really had, you know, wondered if you or any of the other listeners had had some similar experiences about being, I guess, a different person in the office just from, you know, looks. I know that some people have been women working in an all-male office, and, you know, I don't know if there's any kind of ways to best navigate an office where you will be the minority in the group. Maybe how to, like, field questions that might come about or seeking out advocacy for diversity for both yourself and maybe other people to hopefully come on board. Yeah, so I guess my question is about that. I'm, I'm feeling good about the job itself, but worried that I made a mistake for culture reasons, I guess. Joining me on the Bossed Up podcast today to really break this career conundrum down is Maura Cheeks, a writer and editor whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, and Lenny Letter. She has a degree in communications and behavior from the University of Pennsylvania, and she's pursuing her MBA at NYU, where she's conducted an independent study on the effects of race and gender in the workplace. Maura, you're the perfect person who's been really looking closely at these issues and at the research behind them. And I'm just so appreciative of you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and help demystify some of what our caller today is facing at work. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. One of the pieces that you wrote that really captured my attention was for Lenny Letter. Mm -hmm. And it was really all about the psychological, or you put it, the psychic stress of being the only Black woman at work, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what our caller today is worried about. What inspired this piece and what did you discover when putting it together? Yeah, so I've worked in a lot of different organizations over my career graduated from school about 10 years ago. And let me back up a little bit. So I worked in a number of different organizations as a lot of times the only person of color and the only woman of color. And then I went to business school, started my MBA and semester after semester was also the only black woman in a lot of my classes. Um, And so I figured while I was at school, what better place than to take an opportunity to actually systematically explore you know, what are the different reasons that keep so few, I was looking at black women specifically, but women of color from a lot of predominantly white organizations, why aren't they getting in the door? And then once we are in the door, what are the different challenges that we face that are unique to being a woman of color? And so I wanted to explore that. And the Lenny Letter piece sort of came out of that process. It was before I was actually finished with the research, but just wanted to write about my own experiences and just sort of start putting it out there. So that was the first piece that came out of that. And then I wrote a Harvard Business Review article that summarized a lot of the interviews that I did with other Black women about their experiences in in corporations. 
awesome. And we'll absolutely link to those pieces in today's show notes for our readers who want to go further. What did you find? Did anything surprise you when interviewing women for that piece? You know, not necessarily surprising, but confirming a lot of the things that I had experienced myself. And I think there are three main buckets that things tend to fall into when you're thinking about being a woman of color in a predominantly white organization. You know, I think of it as the navigating the day-to-day experience. So what is it like to just exist as a woman of color in the organization? Something that I call consciousness raising, like how do you deal Mm -hmm. with potentially usually unintentional racist slights or sexist slights or both? And then the third thing would be you know, how do you navigate sort of becoming a diversity advocate in a way that supports your career? So those are the yeah. three things that I think emerged from my own experience and, the, and then from the, the different interviews that I conducted. Definitely. You know, a couple of terms that come to mind that I think are important for us to just explain for mm-hmm. our listeners here. One are microaggressions. For anyone mm-hmm. who has yet to come across this concept in the research. And maybe micro is not a great way to even describe some of these outward aggressions, but the experience of being a minority person of any kind, whether whether Mm -hmm. it's based on race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, in a majority environment means you're going to handle or be faced with tiny but consistent Ignorance, right? Moments of ignorance where we put our foot in our mouths, where people might say something to you or comment on your hair or God forbid, touch a black woman's hair, (laughs) right? Like these things that you would never do to white people and white women or people with whom you you share those sort of racial and ethnic categories. Sure. And those microaggressions add up, right? They're so othering and cause emotional stress Mm -hmm. in response to these seemingly innocuous, but really not that innocuous moments of cultural incompetence when people make it very clear that you are not like us. Mm -hmm. And whether that's intentional or not, it sucks that the burden of managing those microaggressions typically falls on the minority group in question, right? Black women at work have to be the ones to explain why no, it's not cool that you touch my hair. Commenting on my name, sure, you know, is not whatever it might be, you know, that's not okay. And then the onus ends up being put on those in a minority group to be the justice brigade yes. when it comes to defending their own sanity and humanity in, in the workplace. So yeah, and I think, you know, that's a, a really good point in, in terms of how do you deal with a lot of the mental stress that you're going to yeah. encounter as a woman of color. And I think women specifically, you know, we take on a lot of, I mean, people use the term emotional labor, but, you know, yeah. we take on a lot of responsibility in, in terms of overanalyzing. Is it something that I did? How do right. I communicate this? How can I be better? And so yeah. you compound all of the things that women do in general. And then you have to layer on the different effects of certain comments, right, that we're dealing with. And so when people talk about intersectionality, that's what I was interested in exploring. Like, how do you as a woman deal with all of this? And then also the added stress of of dealing with sensitive topics like race that might come up in the workplace that people are less comfortable talking about. Right. 
And one thing I always want to make clear is that just because people of color and women of color are more likely to experience microaggressions doesn't mean that they're the ones who have to prevent (laughs) microaggressions from happening. You know, we all can play a role in being active bystanders when that happens and calling fellow white ladies in when Mm -hmm. that's what's needed, right? If you are someone who has some privilege to bring to a conversation, you know, using that opportunity, using that position of privilege to then help remind other folks when you see microaggressions happen, why that's not okay Mm -hmm. or why those behaviors are stress-inducing and othering and make minorities and and women of color in particular feel like they don't belong. And I think that's what we all want, right? When we talk about creating cultures of inclusion, we want to know that we all belong and feel a sense of belonging that can soothe some of that stress, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think the sense of belonging you touch on is really important. And I think just making sure that people know that there are advocates within the organization. So however they want to come forward to just know that they're supported and whether that's going to the boss or whether that's going to their HR person or whether it's an employee resource group, just knowing that there are different outlets and it can be your best friend who sits next to you at work. Just knowing that there's people there who you can talk to you when you are experiencing these different things. Absolutely. And, you know, there's an interesting term I also came across in the research on this that I've since incorporated into all of my keynote speaking on burnout in particular, because mm-hmm. I do a lot of work around burnout and gender. But if you don't look at race when you're talking about burnout, you're not getting the full picture. And this term racial battle fatigue is something that really struck me as an important way of describing, according to William Smith at the University of Utah, who first really coined this term. It's about how microaggressions, those relatively inconspicuous but potent degradation of marginalized people, negatively impacts minorities. And I just thought the word racial battle fatigue perfectly encapsulates the exhaustion, the mental stress that comes with having to do your job and in some ways do it better to be given half as much credit, Mm -hmm. right? And on top of that, having to mitigate the negative stressors of microaggression. So I love your example of how to mitigate the fatigue by just having a friend next to you you can talk to about this stuff or having an employee resource group. What other ways should our caller, do you think, just sort of psychologically prepare to go into an environment where she's going to look around and not see anyone who necessarily looks just like her? I mean, I think it's really important to figure out the way that you work best and to set yourself up for success. So for example, I'm pretty introverted and my last job was an open office, which I hate it. (laughs) And (laughs) and I think, you know, and then you layer on the fact that I was one of few people of color, right? So I'm in this open office. I'm an introvert. So I automatically don't like the open office. And then also I'm a person of color. And so I worked with my boss. We had a pretty flexible schedule. So, you know, I worked with her to say, these are the hours where I'm going to work from home. These are the hours where I'm going to be doing deep work. And these are the different hours where I want to have meetings. And she gave me that space to, to create that time for myself. So I think it's really important when you're going into an environment where mm-hmm. potentially you are the only person of color, only woman of color, just creating the space that works for you. And so if you work best yeah. collaborating with people, you know, set up a workspace and your hours and your day so that it gives you energy as opposed to the other way around. I think like control the things that you can control. I think that's really important. And I think a lot of workplaces are moving in that direction to allow more flexibility. So I think, 
I think a lot of times, especially, you know, if you are the only person of color, you might be hesitant to ask for certain things, especially if you're new Mm. for anyone who's new to a job. But I think just taking ownership over what you can control. And if your workplace does offer flexible hours, you know, setting your day up so that you know, you get energy from it rather than the other way around. Yeah. I like that idea too, after you've established some authority, Mm -hmm. right? After you've proven yourself a little bit, maybe in the beginning, even to just keep your eyes and ears open, you kind of want to be around just to get some intel on these new folks you're working with. But ultimately know thyself, just like you know yourself and how you work best. I also found this really interesting bit. It was in a Harvard Business Review article about stereotype threat. Mm -hmm. So stereotype threat is this awful conclusion in the research that I sort of wrestle with in my forthcoming book about this stuff because the conclusions are terrible. But to summarize it very briefly, stereotype threat is knowing that or worrying that because you are the only woman, Asian woman in the workplace, that you risk confirming some kind of negative stereotype, that you risk people seeing you when you're being nice mm-hmm. as, oh, well, she's being a, a diminutive Asian woman. And that fits some racial stereotype that I hold, right? And so just the anxiety of wanting to not prove a negative stereotype true mm-hmm. ends up detracting from your mental faculties that you can bring to bear on doing a great job. And therefore, people who are stressed about proving a negative stereotype true tend to end up performing worse and in turn can prove that stereotype true inadvertently because we're so stressed about proving it true to begin with. But what the research found, because that's a real head scratcher, I think (laughs) it's sort of like, that's just another reason why we need diversity in the workplace. So nobody feels like they're the one and only representing their entire, you know, race. But this interesting bit of advice came out, which was focus on what you're the only person in a good way, like how you're the only one in there with an MBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, I'm totally qualified to be here. Bring your skill set. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Just go into the meeting, not thinking I'm the only person of color. I'm the only, you know, whatever it might be. I'm the only Latina here. And instead say, I'm the only one with an MBA here. I'm the only one who knows this project inside and out, you know, focusing on your strengths as a definitional factor, right? As, as a way that you're different from others in the room, instead of focusing on the stereotypical ways in which we differ from one another. Sure. And just bring your authentic self and whatever that, that means for you. And I think, yeah, as much as you can do that with confidence, then you're going to succeed and you're going to enjoy the job a lot more. That said, it might be difficult some places and sometimes more so than others, but I think as much as you can just lean into being yourself in a way that gives you confidence, then you'll succeed and people will see that. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between succeeding in your own eyes Mm -hmm. and managing the very biased perception that other people might have of you. You know, I think no matter what happens at work, because we all make mistakes, right? We're going to have good days. We're going to have not so great days. Being on your own side psychologically, you know, cheering yourself on, retaining your sense of being a leader in your own eyes or being the boss of your own career is so critically important that it it comes back to basic foundations of mental health. You know, even when everyone around you doesn't seem to reinforce your leadership identity, you've got to find ways and you've got to find people that are going to reinforce that, even if it's outside of work. You know, calling your trusted allies, (laughs) calling your besties who are going to cheer you on even when you screw up. 
and giving yourself a little bit of slack, even if the world doesn't, I think is so important. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah, going to that point, I think the caller was, I think, partially alluding to, you know, what does she do or he do when there are potential comments that could come up and you feel like you have a responsibility to say something because you are the only minority, Right. right? And so... I think it's important, again, to do that in a way that you feel comfortable with. And so some people feel yeah. more comfortable saying things in the moment to give a person feedback and other people feel more comfortable doing it in private, right? And so I yeah. think it's just important to know yourself and to also, I think it's really important to look at the intent of the person. So yeah, I think it's very rare when people have ill intentions in the workplace in terms of these you know, potentially insensitive comments that come up. Yeah. Usually it's rare, <laughs> um, but yeah. you know, looking at the intent of the, per- the person and then having a conversation with them one-on-one potentially looping in yeah. with the larger team, you, you know, just doing it in a way that you feel comfortable with that is in line with the environment of where you're working. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so conflicted about this. Tell me what you think, because I go back and forth as to what kind of responsibility we have to always jump on that Mm -hmm. grenade. You know, (laughs) like if you are there trying to establish yourself, you're the one who is the minority population in this majority environment. If someone says something insensitive, there might not be any moral. This should be a a letter I write into the ethicist (laughs) in the New York Magazine, New York Times Mag. But you know, is there a moral obligation for you to fight that fight? Do you have to stand up for all minorities and people of color and women? Not necessarily. Would it make the world a better place? Yes. But this is why we have to get more men being active allies to help curb misogyny in the workplace. And this is why we need more white people to curb white supremacy in the workplace. You know what I mean? I just don't feel like the onus should always fall on the person who is in the majority environment to be the one who's the justice crusader. Yeah, I mean, I I think the responsibility is on everyone, right? I think that it's not just the person of color, although they may notice it sooner. It's the responsibility of everyone to bring to light the comments that are insensitive that can potentially cause harm because, you know, they do cause harm when you think about the turnover rate of minorities in certain companies, like there's a high turnover rate for a reason. Right. And so if they don't feel supported to push back on certain policies or certain people who are saying insensitive things, then they're going to leave because it's draining to feel like you're not supported and you're not seen in an environment where you spend most of your time. Also, that's where HR like is supposed to do its job. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because HR isn't in every meeting, right? And so it's like, right, there's a case to be made for creating environments with teams specifically where each team feels, you know, they're aware of the avenues they should go through if they come up against something that's insensitive. And I think that that needs to be integrate it more within the organization than just at the HR level, because HR is very removed and, you know, HR is working for the company, yeah, not necessarily for right. you. Well, it's also an interesting way of framing it. So if you are this new person, like a caller who's going into a an environment where she knows she's going to be a minority and something insensitive does come up, know that you don't have to do mm-hmm. this alone. You could go to HR, you can report the incident, you can have the conversation there and have someone else 
address it, or at least let someone else have the opportunity to address it. You don't need to pick, not pick, but you don't need to fight every battle like this on your own. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially when you're new and you don't know your team members as well. I think as you get to know people, you can suss out the personalities, right? And if they're going to be receptive to you talking to them one-on-one. Most people are not as receptive to public shaming. You know, it's it's so dependent on the situation. Yeah. What's interesting is now companies are more interested in reducing their potential for liability. So even if something happens to you and you feel slighted, raising the issue with HR can magnify the potential risk that lots of people will face, not just you. So you're not coming to HR and saying, I'm insulted, I'm offended, I'm exhausted from dealing with this person and saying insensitive things. It's more like, hey, I want to do you and the company a favor by letting you know that you have someone who's working for you who's doing and saying insensitive things that could lead to a lawsuit. You know, like you want to protect the company's best interests. Here's an opportunity to do that. And I'm cynical in thinking that your own feelings aren't always enough to get a company to back you up and take action. But just so we all know, you know, if you really want to have all the cards out on the table and play them all that you can... Part of a way to do that is framing what's happening to you as the company opening itself up to liability. that's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about implicit bias training too, right? And I think if you are the only minority in your company, as the caller will be, there's an opportunity there for you to also create some change. Because I think while it's exhausting to have a lot of the responsibility on you, it is also an opportunity, right, to push the organization to train employees to actually put some processes behind diverse hiring. And I think that's really important because that will also help your career, right? If you can take some of that leadership in terms of, you know, setting up the organization to hire more diverse employees, actually setting up some training, potentially starting an employee resource group. I think that said, it ends up being a lot of extra work. And so depending on how much you're taking on, I think it's important too to also start negotiating that in your salary. Like maybe the next time you have a review, you know, highlight all of the different things that you've been bringing to the organization in terms of diversity. So I think it's an opportunity as well. I like that. It's interesting because it's a leadership opportunity. It's an opportunity to show that you can lead something and it's personally beneficial, or at least ultimately we hope that it leads to more diversity, which benefits you and benefits the rest of us, right? Benefits the whole workplace. I like that. And even enlisting the support of people to organize and do the work and get a budget for that work is a great way to go about thinking of it. So it's not all that emotional labor, again, falling on the shoulders of women and women of color alone. I just think it's important to make sure that it's it's working for you, right? Because I think like you said, you'll benefit if you can get some more diverse people in the organization, but also the company will benefit and everyone will benefit. (laughs) And then also you can sort of position that as a leadership opportunity. I like that a lot. Now I want to address what else folks who are Mm -hmm. white and listening to this might be able to do. Let's say we've been innocuously going about our business, not quite realizing that we are in a very majority white environment, perhaps not realizing that we're in a very majority male and pale (laughs) environment, which is a lot of the women who come through my doors, you know, report that there's mostly men in leadership where they work, or there's a a male dominated workplace. But 
layering on race as we look at that sets us up to really think about how we can deconstruct white Mm -hmm. supremacy as it overlaps with sexism. And I found this really interesting interview my friend Elise Kreisinger did for her Refinery29 show recently, Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'll link to it in the bio here, which is all about how being nice is not sufficient for dismantling white supremacy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of nice white people out there who say, I can't possibly be racist. I'm an environmentalist or I'm a vegetarian or I'm a, you know, I'm a Beyonce (laughs) fan, you know, whatever it is. Like step one has to be acknowledging how we all carry unconscious bias. But what else do you think that white folks can do to help make the experience of women of color at work in particular better, easier, more just? Well, it's a hefty question. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of organizations recently where, men on leadership teams have said, I'm not going to be on a panel unless a woman is present. So I think taking that further, you know, what about if a woman of color is present? I think a lot of conversation about gender equality in the workplace misses women of color. So I think anytime you're having that conversation, also not as an afterthought, but as being central to the conversation, think about women of color in that as well, you know? And so I think that's really important. We've talked a little bit about the power of calling Mm -hmm. each other in, you know, when we see something go down, that's not cool. But I think empowering white people to call in fellow white people on that is so huge. You know, we just finished up Thanksgiving here (laughs) in the United States. And that's always an opportunity, I feel like, for conversations with our family members that can sometimes stray into the political domain. And I remember when I was actually working for President Obama as a state director, sitting at an Easter dinner, when some completely racist language was used to describe our president. And I don't need to agree with all the politics of all my family members, but I couldn't sit there and just eat my ham and be quiet. You know what I mean? So I said, you know, at the time, as an imperfect attempt at disrupting racism and white supremacy, I think I said, do you know how incredibly racist it is what you just said there? And like every fork dropped at the table and it was, you know, it was a serious moment. You have to be willing to go there, I think. Yeah. With our own Beckys, you know what I mean? With Mm -hmm. our own loved ones. I think that's where we move the needle. Yeah. I mean, I think it's harder. It's harder in the workplace because everyone is sort of concerned about where they stand and they don't want to piss other people off. They're looking out for themselves. But at the same time, I mean, I've worked with many people who have been amazing advocates and they jump in and say something before, you know, I do or, or someone else does. And I think the more that that exists, the more change we'll see. Yeah. And I think it has to extend everywhere in the organization. I think it can't just be on the responsibility of HR. It can't just be yeah. on the responsibility of managers. It has to be throughout. I think one way we all can live up to what you just described too is not having an explosive reaction mm-hmm. when we are called in ourselves. So I was delivering a keynote on a stage in front of 300 people at a conference about the future of work, I think. And I had given the opening keynote about sustainability and burnout prevention. And this was before I had 
slides in my talk about racial battle fatigue because it was at that talk that someone in the audience, a woman of color, raised her hand at the Q&A portion and said, where does racial battle fatigue fit into this? And I had to admit in front of 300 people, as graciously as I could muster, that I had no idea what she was talking about. Sure. (laughs) And that sounds really important. And it sounds like something I should integrate into my work and basically apologize in front of the people who had, you know, booked me and paid for me to be on that stage to say, yeah, tell me more. I I don't know about this. And it sounds like a really important important. thing that needs to be integrated to this work instead of saying, oh, well, let me bullshit my way through this answer and get all defensive and, you know, freak out and and put the onus back on her for calling me out, right? Because it is a natural defensiveness that can rise up in us. But the more we can all model, like listening, actively listening to women and, and minorities and people of color. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm a big fan of one-on-one conversations first and then yeah. potentially, <laughs> I mean, in that situation, it's a little hard to get around. <laughs> but I think you're right because the the natural response is to be defensive when and it, whenever... Right. I mean, and we all do it whenever anyone is giving you feedback on something and you didn't have a bad intention, right? your instinct is to be defensive. And so right. I think that is even more so in the workplace. And I think a lot of times you can benefit from having that one-on-one conversation, but then also then looping the larger team in. You know, I had an instance where, you know, I worked in a media company and so we were viewing a lot of different pieces of content and a lot of people would share yeah. content without looking at the content itself. So we would look at, you know, different interactives and the way that things were designed. And someone shared an article about lynching, right? But they didn't mention the content of the article and they were just looking at the beautiful colors and the way that it was designed. And that was a major trigger for me. Yeah. Sort of not really a fan of that word, but it was hard to listen to them describing the design of the content without paying attention to the content itself. And so, you know, that's an instance where, you know, I had a conversation with my boss and we actually, we just looped in the larger team to say, whenever you're sharing a piece of content, this is what you need to be aware of. You need to be looking at the actual content. So, you know, it became a larger conversation of like, how do we loop in the larger team to, to understand without calling one person out? Because, you know, I knew their intention. They didn't have a bad intention necessarily. It's just... Well, it points to a system failure. A lack of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you brought a systemic solution to what is a systematic failure because we're all human. <laughs> we're all, exactly. You know, we're all paying attention to different things. And there's no way that any one of us can be perfectly sensitive and contextually woke all the time. It just doesn't happen. You don't right. have 100% empathy for other people. It just doesn't happen that way. So I think doing the best you can and not freaking out when you mess up and getting all defensive is a really helpful first step. I'm so excited that we were able to have this conversation. I hope our listener has a lot of tools in her toolbox as she moves into this next phase. And I hope all of our listeners know that we each can play an important role in dismantling white supremacy at work, but also just making being a minority at work a more pleasant experience. The work you're doing is amazing. Keep it up. And thank you for sharing some of your precious time with us today. Thank you. It's been great. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move Moment of the Week. Hi, Emily. This is Sarah calling from Canada. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I listen to it mostly every morning on my way to work. 
and I was just navigating a career transition of my own. I kind of had a job opportunity pretty much fall into my lap through a friend of mine who referred me to her company, and I just felt like it was a huge opportunity that I couldn't miss out on. But I listened to your podcast all through my process, and I just gave a notice at my current job a few days ago, and I was able to listen to your Quitting with Grace podcast a few times and helped get me through that moment. And I was also able to try to negotiate my salary at the current position, and I listened to your Know Your Worth podcast on repeat for a couple days while I was trying to uh, go through that process. So thank you so much for all that you do with our community. Sarah, congratulations. I am so excited to hear from you on this and thrilled to hear you've got my podcast on repeat when you need that extra boost of confidence. That's exactly what this is all about. So congratulations on making this big transition like a boss. We are snapping for you over here and cheering you on. And yes, I will drop show notes to the two shows that Sarah mentioned in the notes below so that everybody can listen and hype yourself up when you've got a big offer you're weighing on the line too. Thanks so much for calling in and sharing your come up story. You never know who you're inspiring when you make a boss move known to the world. So thank you, Sarah. If you have a boss move or a career conundrum that you want to share and get us to tackle next on the podcast or want to hear your boss move on the podcast next, give my hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. So now it's time for me to give a special shout out to a recent awesome review that came in on iTunes in support of the Bossed Up podcast, which, as you know, makes a big difference in helping grow our show and helping make sure that other people see it. So this one came in from Britt Koff, who said, Emily Aries is amazing, not only for career conundrums, but overall support in life as a woman. I first heard her on Stuff Mom Never Told You, which I truly miss hearing you on. I hear you, boss. But I understand the importance of your other endeavors. And I decided to give Bossed Up a listen, and I'm so happy I did. She cares about her listeners and works hard to give the best information she can find. Thanks for being so awesome. Girl, thank you for being so awesome. I love everything you captured in such a quick but awesome review of the podcast. I feel you. I miss being on stuff I've never told you, too. I miss working with Bridget Todd, who is amazing. But sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So I'm so glad you found your way here so we can continue to be pod pals on Bossed Up's terms, really on my own terms, on my own show. So thank you for your continued support. It makes a huge difference. And you're damn right. I work as hard as I can to give you the best information I can find. So I'm glad that's coming through. And thank you for doing all you can to share the podcasts that make a difference in your world with someone else you think could use it. And on that note, today we tackled some pretty tough topics, talking honestly about the ignorance of being a majority person, like a white person in a predominantly white space comes with some weird, uncomfortable feelings sometimes or acknowledging that all of us are a little biased when it comes to racism and unconscious sexism and all kinds of isms. Not an easy thing to do. So I'd love to hear from you. What came up for you today? There are no right or wrong responses, but I'd love to hear if you thought that the topics we covered today have inspired any different actions on your part moving forward to help 
make safer spaces out of all of our workplaces, especially for women of color who are really who we were talking about today in terms of being a minority in a majority environment. So that experience of living at the intersection of racism and sexism cannot be easy. So if you're a woman of color listening to this, I'd love to hear from you as well. What resonated with you in today's episode? What didn't we hit? What did we miss that we need to shine more of a light on moving forward? I'd love to hear from you. As always, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all at Emily Aries, waiting to hear from you. So feel free to tag me in your stories and let's keep the conversation going. Otherwise, you can always share your comments directly in the Bossed Up blog post that corresponds with this episode. So in this case, that would be at the bottom of bossedup.org slash episode 74. I can't wait to hear what you think. Let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.